0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com
0: host of radio cherry bomb you're listening to heritage radio network broadcasting live from bushwick brooklyn if you like this program visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more
1: Welcome to Inside School Food. I'm your host, Laura Stanley, and I've got something good for you today school gardens to cafeteria. My guests are Andy Nowak, director of the National School Garden Program for Slow Food USA, and Rick Sherman, farm to school and school garden coordinator at the Oregon Department of Education. I think it's going to be lively because Andy and Rick are not just good friends, but fellow Energizer bunnies. Both are national leaders, not just in school gardening, but the movement to introduce student-grown produce into school meals. We're going to find out from them what this looks like in different settings and steps school gardeners and school food service professionals can take together to make it happen, and most important, why it's worth the effort. So good morning, gentlemen.
2: Good morning. Good morning, Laura.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm going to start out west and work my way inland to Andy, okay? So we'll start um, introducing Rick. Um, Rick was brought on by the Oregon Department of Education um, two years ago, 2012, as farm-to-school and school garden coordinator after being um, a, a food service management professional for 32 years. Uh, so you kind of crossed over from there, Rick. And the 20 of those years, he spent as a school food service director um, throughout Oregon in Eugene, Albany, and Dallas, Oregon. Um, and Rick is a master gardener, which is something that uh, came to him um, on his last job in uh, Eugene, and that's something we'll be talking about shortly. Um, and Andy at Slow Food USA uh Andy is building uh, capacity of Slow Food Chapters to be partners in school garden projects. He got his start in this work in his hometown of Denver, where he spearheaded the development of a robust network of gardens throughout the district and uh, Slow Food Denver Seed to Table school food program. I should add for those listeners who heard our June 2nd episode about local sustainable chicken in Jefferson County, Colorado, um, you will recall that that was a Slow Food Denver project as well, and Andy was at the helm there, too. He's a Hall of Fame chef with Share Our Strength Cooking Matters program and was one of six chefs invited to the White House in 2010 to help develop the Chef's Moves to School program. Um, so, school gardens are hugely popular, more so all the time, especially now that we have a kind of national school garden at the White House. USDA is attempting to keep track Its farm-to-school census indicates we may have edible gardens in as many as 31% of schools nationwide. How many of these are supplying food to the cafeteria is anyone's guess except in Oregon, where Rick Sherman's office is painstakingly keeping track of that as well. So, Rick, what do you know and how did you find out?
3: Yeah, it was it was a it was a process that was for sure. Um the first day on my job here, I asked the question how many school gardens there were in Oregon and of course no one knew that number and and I said, "Well, I should find out." And I was pretty much told that I shouldn't try because it was a difficult process to do to to figure out how many school gardens there were. And so, you know, my thing is, well, never tell me I can't do something, right? So um, I went about a task of starting to call every school. You know, I work for the Department of Education, so we have lots of lists of phone numbers. So I just took 20 minutes a day for three months, and I just called every school in the state um, with a simple question of, do you have a school garden? And uh once uh, I answered that question, I had a list and populated a map which was on our school garden website and um, then we've since gone back and uh, found out uh, a school garden coordinator or somebody in charge for every one of those uh, those uh, gardens and we're starting to ask uh, more questions like you know go circle back with them and um, find out exactly how many of them are serving food from their garden how um, how many has uh, you know, garden-based education taking place, um, and, and, and so on. We've uh, actually, the next step in this process is to get it, uh, we got it approved to the National School Lunch Program process here in Oregon where food service directors reapply every year, and that's that piece is a part of it now on the school garden piece where they, um, they um, answer some questions about, um, their school gardens in their state
1: right so you won't have to hand count anymore um, and that that's that, a, only that's only Oregon's doing that right I'm sorry only Oregon is doing that making that part of the Re application.
3: Yes yeah, that's okay. currently a part of that um, um, as we speak.
1: Great, great so and and uh, apparently you found out in making these painstaking calls over three months that fully half of how many gardens in uh, Oregon school gardens
3: We have. 513 as of today. Right, so fully
1: half of them are actually supplying some amount of food to the cafeteria, which is pretty remarkable. Um, What do you know about the kind of range? Of, of that in terms of the volumes that the gardens are supplying to these schools. Well that,
3: that part as of today is anecdotal. We, we just know of um, a, a lot of instances of garden produce going into the cafeteria and just in my visits and around the state um, there's some as as much as um, large volumes of uh, large gardens where they have almost a mini farm or they have just some raised beds on, you know. It just depends what is going on at that particular school. But um, you know, one of the one of the arguments uh, against getting garden into garden produce into the cafeteria is that oh, we just don't have enough to supply the whole school body. And um, I found that um, really um, to be not the case uh, as, as as far as an argument.
1: Right, right. You, you, you said to me when we spoke about this earlier that um, it, a little can be just as impactful as a lot. So that's that's yeah,
3: you know, yeah. It, it,
1: um, tell me about that.
3: Well, yeah, and and my last uh, food service nutrition services uh, management job that I had before I have my current job um, was in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, one of my schools had a school garden day there, and um, I showed up, and we had a half hotel pan of green leaf lettuce from from the garden. That was all they could supply after after the garden education pieces, where the kids are out in the garden and they're actually they're eating some of the produce out there or whatever. So they had this. Um, they advertised it, you know, they had it in their bulletin. Every kid just about came in and got a school lunch that day. Uh, What was more, we had uh, two TV stations that were local there in Eugene showed up. Uh, The local newspaper showed up as well as uh, National Public Radio. Um, All there taking pictures of this one little half hotel pan and all the kids got a little taste of it. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw and that just hit it home so much. And I use that story quite a bit This, says, you know, one little pan you'd be surprised what a what a big deal that is to the to the kids
1: yeah i I, I I love that story i really do um and so at this point so eugene was your last um school food service director job um and and it was the first district in which you decided to get involved with gardens um what why was it what was it about eugene that that made it happen for you there
3: Well, Eugene's a really unique community. I think they're just a a bunch of special people down there that really care about their environment and and, uh, nutrition for their kids like a lot of communities. But in this particular community, I had a a parent group that I worked closely with, and a lot of them worked in their school gardens. We had 19 school gardens at the time. There's more now. But um, uh, just to... Mm -hmm just to work with the parent group and, and speak the same languages of them and see how they worked. I decided I wanted to volunteer in as many of the gardens as I can and work shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with them um, in a lot of their projects they had in um, school garden days. So I started doing that, and the more I did it, the more it just uh, lit a passion in me, and I wanted to learn more. I I became a master gardener um, there in, in Lane County, and um, and, you know, it really... Created a monster, and that I became that nutty food service director that was passionate about um, getting any bit of uh, school garden uh, produce into the cafeteria and buying as much local as I can. So it really just changed uh, changed uh, the way I thought more and more, and you know, it quickly took over my life in a good way.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Andy, um, Rick's story must kind of familiar to you because you've got your start on the other side um, as a Denver parent and school garden leader. Um, So you started, as many parents do, at your own children's elementary school and then eventually led an expansion into how many schools in Denver?
2: Um, In Denver Public Schools, we have over 70 school gardens um, out of a district of uh 85 elementary schools and 150 some overall schools um but we also support six other school districts in the denver metro area um with programming like we do for denver public schools and and all those districts the gardens are growing um in size and number also
1: right and you say we you mean slow food denver correct
2: Exactly. Slow Food Denver, with our partners, Um, this takes, you know, Slow Food Denver is a very small grassroots nonprofit, and so it takes a lot of partnerships to Mm -hmm. pull that many gardens uh, together and such. So we've got a lot of great partners in Denver, too.
1: Right, right. So when you began, were you doing it through Slow Food Denver, or were you an independent dad getting this thing off the ground, kind of more grassroots? The
2: very first garden at my kid's school, I was uh, yeah an independent dad. Um, I, I was actually working as a teacher's aide in the in the school. We had just moved to Denver and wanted to get to know the school a little bit better, and and uh, I, I saw right away how much food was involved and food discussions was involved in their day-to-day curriculum in in their reading books and in their cultural studies and such, and so. Um, I suggested that we, uh, I first started with some cooking classes with the kids, and that led to the desire to have a garden to show kids where food came from. And, and so, yeah, I started for about a year before I became involved with Slow Food Denver.
1: Right, right. And then you were pretty well, you know, long into the process of developing gardens um, at Denver Public Schools before you began talking to food service about moving student-grown fruit and vegetables into the cafeteria. You know, so how, how many years in did that start happening?
2: Um, well, so the garden started in 2001 and it wasn't until about 2009 before we were invited to the table to have discussions with food services and, and become a, one of their partners as they began a, a long process of transforming their school meal program to more locally fresh and, and um, produce overall.
1: Right, right. And so who, who, uh, who started the conversation? About getting getting, you know, getting the garden produce into well, the
2: cafeteria. Well, um, th- yeah, that's a fun, funny story in these parts. Um, <laughs> I, if you've ever heard of the movie uh, Two Angry Moms mm-hmm. concerning the school meal programs, I was known as the angry dad here in Denver, <laughs> and and w- I was quite vocal about how disappointed we were that you know about the school meal programs in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, we were growing all this great food in the gardens, and the kids were eating it, but we weren't seeing it in the cafeteria. So it, it took the the intervention of a of assistant superintendent to bring uh, slow food and food food service together in 2009 to start that conversation, and and we had a I still remember that meeting very well, and we discovered that we both have the same mission. We want to feed kids healthy food, to give them the best um, chances for success in the classroom, and and so from 2009 we began a process of. Of figuring out how we could work together, using the success from our school gardens to support their plans to transform the food in the school meal program
1: right right, and the school food service director um, at the time in Denver had an unusual proposition for you. he wanted to pay the gardens for the produce uh, why
2: well we in, in two thousand and nine we we be, uh, Denver public Schools became part of a national a program called school food focus and the intent of focus was to get school districts to buy more locally um, grown food and, and raised animal products and and Slow Food Denver was the partner on that project and so in the middle of that project we were getting all this great food from the farms and Leo Lesh, the food service director at the time, said we should also get food from the school gardens because you guys are producing a lot of food and he said I'm, I'm paying the farmers for the food, I might well pay the kids for the food too and and uh, you know I don't mean to imply that the kids are actually collecting the the money. The money goes to the school gardens to, to support the supplies and the needs that they have on a year-to-year basis.
1: Right, but I understand that's pretty unusual for the district to actually be paying the gardens for for produce.
2: I I have not come across another program like that. Um, as Rick and I are recently traveling and, and presenting these programs uh, at national conferences. The fact that Denver Public Schools is paying for the produce raised quite the hubbub down in Austin at the Farm to Cafeteria Conference, and, and a lot of the garden leaders there were, were reporting that their directors saw this as a big challenge in, in getting the garden produce into the cafeteria.
1: Why? I mean, well, first of all, we're not talking about a lot of produce, right? As as Rich no, said, sometimes not. it's no. a pan in, of lettuce. In, in a
2: typical year, in Denver public schools, twenty school gardens may supply about a thousand dollars worth of produce. You know, which is doesn't even scrape the bottom of the bucket compared to how much produce the district buys on a yearly basis. Um, th- there are strict procurement rules for food service directors to follow when they're using their USDA monies to buy fresh produce, and, and I think. Uh, the, the 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 overall feeling is that the, buying from a school garden is still part of their procurement process. And what I'm trying to convince everybody is buying from the school garden is part of an educational process. And you're allowed to use your USDA money for educational purposes. And and buying plants and seeds for school gardens is totally permissible by the USDA. And so I think it's just a national, uh, a natural extension to buy produce from the school gardens to show the kids that their hard work and that their efforts um, is meaningful and it contributes to the overall meal program in the district.
1: Right, and, and I know that that Slow Food um, is interested, among, among other things, in having um, food justice incorporated into its garden. Um, kind of raison d'être—it's its curriculum. So they're they're picking that up if if they're aware that the district is paying them for their work.
2: So very very true. We feel that everyone along the the supply chain of food should get their fair equal prices. And so at, you know, as we're engaging local farmers in discussions for farm to school programs and asking them to consider schools to be another market for their produce we want the farmers to get a fair price um... for all the work that they put in and so uh... we believe that the kids um and and you know there are costs to school gardens and right now in general districts don't pay for much of those costs those are still being generated by the parents and the volunteers out of the garden and so we have to account for those costs. And, and you know, food going into the cafeteria should have a cost to the program.
1: Right, right. Okay. Well, we're going to go to station break. Um, and when we come back, we'll be talking about um, some logistics, including food safety. Uh, you're listening to Andy Nowak and Rick Sherman on Inside School Food. Uh, stay with us.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Kiefer, host of The Morning After. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning cinco. That's five for you non-Spanish speakers. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food, culture, and content like nobody else. And we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented, nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much for your support.
2: Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, heritageradionetwork.org.
1: You're listening to Inside School Food. Today, a conversation about serving produce from school gardens in school meals with Andy Nowak, director of the National School Garden Program for Slow Food USA, and Rick Sherman, Farm to School and School Garden Coordinator at the Oregon Department of Education. So, Rick and Andy, both of you have devoted enormous effort to designing and implementing food safety protocols for student gardens. It seems that food handling by children um, raises big concerns. Um, In your experience, do concerns about food safety tend to inhibit the development of garden to cafeteria? I don't know who wants to jump in here. How about you, Rick? For starters, I would.
3: Yeah, I would love to. Um, when I was new to this posi- position in Oregon, and actually the whole position in Oregon was new. When I started kind of delving into this area of getting the produce into the cafeteria, um, that was one of the arguments, the negative arguments I seem to get from time to time, um, quite frequently, actually, from more of the maybe some of the food service directors or more likely some of the principals or administrations in some of the schools was that there was a perception that, you know, I wanted to really emphasize a perception here, um, that food might not be safe to serve in the cafeteria or there might be too much liability associated with it because it's not purchased from a bona fide like distributor or or farm or whatever and it was too loose or, so so that's when um yeah I started um looking into um, what I was currently using was just like a basic checklist that I developed for the the past, the past place that I I work for but I found out it was pretty inadequate and it didn't um answer all of the questions and and coming from a food service background and HACCP, Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point, that's the standard everyone Mm -hmm. uses in in the industry. Um, I started kind of having more of um, this checklist go into a whole training and documentation manual to take away that argument. Um, Whereas, you know, um, every aspect of the garden produce is taken care of. Like, did you wash your hands when you uh, harvested the food? Did you... um, uh, you know, how is the food you know brought into the cafeteria is it washed? You know, if you compost, what do you do with that compost? And and this wasn't a quick and easy thing. This project took over a year and um and Andy here was uh one of the instrumental folks as well as about fifty other people from all over the country that helped me develop it and, and read it and reread it and edit it and edit it and so now um I've been having a lot of uh good use rolling this out in Oregon.
1: Right, right, and you, you said to me um, earlier, w- with regard to a checklist, um, things that are not documented didn't happen. So, if if there you know there is some kind of a foodborne illness that right. occurs, um, you are the garden program is is essentially protected if you can demonstrate that you've checked off everything um, with well, regard to food handling, right?
3: Yeah. In the National School Lunch Program, typically what happens is, a, is an entity like the county health inspectors come in twice a year and um, go through your operation and, and um, they'll do surprise audits and look um, at your flow of the food through the establishment. and. The one thing that I've kind of gotten um, loud and clear from these folks, which I've sh- I've shared um, the program with a lot of county health officials, and they seem to really like it, um, but they typically don't care if food comes from a garden, school garden, or the distributor truck that comes in. They just want to make sure the food is handled correctly, and and. They want to go through, and you're exactly right. If and they have that saying, I've heard has come from county health officials. that says, uh, you know, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. There's no way you can prove that. You know, well, we've done this diligently, and they can look at these documents and tell if it's if they're done correctly or if they're just like you know. Um, uh, not done correctly. So uh, it it seems to work really well, and it takes away that argument that says, oh, there's no way we can have this as a reputable source where we think it it, um, works well now.
1: Well and and it's it's um a good uh protocol for for volunteers and you know that you have a lot of uh, different people circ- cycling in and out of the garden students volunteers teachers um so there's one system everybody follows and it's really straightforward so it it, it you know I, I think uh getting it together may have been complicated but it sounds like using it is pretty easy right
3: um it it only works if you use it. Mm-hmm. That's the, fir- the first thing. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that you just um, shouldn't have on your shelf, but a working document, and you, you, you use it daily and weekly as you're, as you're doing your day-to-day things. I know uh, operations are very busy, both in school gardens and teachers and uh, nutrition services folks, and this isn't to be viewed as something that's like, oh, it's just one more thing I've got to do. It's You know, you're dealing with precious commodities and students and you want to do everything you can to make sure that they're safe and uh, this is just one of those things that just realize that you know um, we need to take care of these things and um, and there's some training and just do the documentation, as it says, and um, and it's a little peace of mind.
1: Great, right, right. So um, both you um, and Andy have put online, or I should say in Andy's case it's the um, Denver Public Schools, have actually put their checklist and safety protocols online, and I will be uh, posting those resources um, on the Inside School Food Facebook page. So th- And they are easily adapted from one um uh, setting to another. I, I imagine that there, there are um, regional differences uh, with regard to uh, certain requirements um, called for by public health authorities. It, you know, if, you, if, if, for instance, a district in Virginia wants to take the the, uh, the checklist that you've developed in, in Denver, um, Andy, how, where do they turn to make sure that it, it, it works according to the rules where they live?
2: Well yeah, I've always said that what we develop in Denver just needs to be a template, needs to be the beginning of a discussion in your own community. Um even here in Colorado, the the rules change county to county, and while we have our our template in every county now in in the state of Colorado, I'm still advising schools and county health officials to sit down together and reexamine this document and adapt it to their needs within their county. Um so um, it, it's a useful tool. It's a beginning point. It gets the discussion going, and, and that is often a hurdle. Um, Rick and I are probably on the phone every week with different school districts, wanting to get started with this, and they just don't know how to get started. So, having a template at least gets them, at least gets the ball rolling, and it gives them some place to begin the discussion.
1: Right, right. So, um, back back to data. Um, research on the health impacts of school gardening is still in its infancy. Um, and But what we have so far suggests that children who garden at school are way less neophobic about trying produce, um, vegetables in particular, and much more likely to eat it. Um, as for how student-grown produce in school meals affects uh, fruit and vegetable consumption. We don't have data yet. But anecdotally, as Rick mentioned um, earlier, we're hearing a lot of good stuff about impact. Um, so, you know, Rick and Andy, based on your experience, would you say that kids like seeing the food they've grown themselves in the salad bar? You know, what's, what, what happens? Um, Rick, you, you mentioned what yep. happened in uh, – Oh, tell me about what the, the Portland story you told me earlier. It was a great one.
3: Okay. And and first of all, yeah, there is a st- um, many studies, and the one that jumps out on me, there's one by the Journal of the American Dietetic Association. It finds that kids that are involved in the process of growing are more likely to have healthier diets. And and if you want to read more about that, if you could Google that, American Dietetic Association, you know, garden, you'll probably go right to it. But but that's exactly right. I was, um, the other day, I was at a school garden visit in um, Portland Public Schools, and, and they had a, a kale and pear salad on the on the line and now typically it's been my experience if you put something very healthy like that on there and just put it out there the kids may or may not choose to take it but if you have uh, you know a morning assembly about it um if the kids if that's something they have grown like the the thing the story i shared about when i was in eugene they're very excited to try it and when i was there it was so funny. Not only was every kid choosing the kale and pear salad and loving it, the, the entire student body, body population, and there was over 600 kids at this elementary school, and um, there was a very high participation right there. The lo- all the kids were eating. So um, not only were they eating it, there was a display table out front that had um, just um, some fronds of kale and some pears there, and it wasn't intended to be a salad bar. It was a it was a, a display to say, hey, today is our school garden day, you know, or whatever. Well, we turned around and looked, and the, the whole display was gone, and we saw kids <laughs> walking around eating the entire, you know, fronds of kale, you know, the spine and all, and just, say, just saying how wonderful it was, you know. So it just goes to show if you it put a little effort into it and there's educational opportunities taking place, yeah, you see it. Um, um wholeheartedly that the kids will um, make healthy choices
1: right right and and andy you you told me that in um, Denver the uh, salad bar will actually have like a point of service marketing like a a shelf talker kind of thing to let kids know what items in the salad bar come out of the school gardens
2: well i yes, exactly, I believe that you know we need to market this with within the school with the students and the parents that visit at lunch and even with the teachers and so In in Denver public schools, they they've created these whiteboards that are attached to the beginning of the salad bar, and it'll say, you know, today uh, on your salad bar, these items came from the school garden. And, you know, we tend to grow kind of unusual items in the gardens because we want to show kids about the variety of tomatoes and the different shapes and colors of cucumbers. And so it's, you know, on the salad bar, it's fairly obvious when the school garden produce is there because with the yellow, um, yellow teardrop tomatoes or the lemon cucumbers, these are items that the uh, school kitchens don't buy or don't even have uh, access to through their vendors. And so the school garden produce really pops on the on the. Salad And the kids get excited to see
1: it. Right. And I I also just wanted to clarify um, in in the case of Denver, Slow Food Denver worked directly with School Food Service. uh, but in your role with Slow Food USA, your your new role, you're you're not working directly with districts anymore, right? So so if a district is interested in the work you're doing, including there's a, there's a gorgeous manual for school gardens that um, Slow Food USA has produced, which I will put on the Inside School Food Facebook page. So so districts that are interested in um, accessing those resources and getting help. Um, from slow food usa who do they talk to they talk to you or or someone else
2: well we're i'm just in the very beginning of this job you know kind of like rick a year ago and so i i have a lot of work to do to get my chapters up and ready to handle discussions with uh, with food service directors um, I, my goal is to eventually connect local school districts to their slow food chapter in the city, and, and that chapter then will be the conduit of information from, from my team down to, this, to the chapter to the schools. Um, in the meantime, I, you know, I'd be very happy to talk to any directors that want you know further information about how slow food engages uh, school gardens and, and works with school districts, and, and, and while I'm building the capacity of the slow food chapters. I'll have the capacity also to work with the with the districts because I don't want to miss out on an opportunity to work with the district while my chapters are gaining in their capacity. Yes, to do that, this
1: job. that that would not be your style, Andy.
2: No, <laughs> I said not you at were all. an energizer
1: bunny. <laughs> um, well, and, and I should add that the manual is available to anyone. So even if um, you know. Uh, A district is building their their garden program without the help of uh, Slow Food Chapter. The the manual's there, and it's a a fabulous tool. Um, But, you know, you you did um, emphasize earlier in the conversation, Andy, that it took you many years before you felt the Denver gardens were ready to work with School Food Service. So this is not something that a new gardening program should be jumping into from the get-go, Right.
2: Well, when we started the gardens in 2001, and and actually some of our partners had started a few years even earlier in Denver public schools, this is before school gardens were really part of the national discussion. You know, this is way before the White House garden that Michelle Obama put in. Um, the Edible Schoolyard at that time was that was definitely the the target uh, school garden in the nation and such. But school gardens weren't really seen as a great resource um, for education or food for the cafeteria or anything back in the early 2000s. So it it did take us a while to show the capacity of gardens, show that the students uh, were excited to be in the gardens, that we could grow food, and that it could have a meaningful uh, impact on the meal program because the kids were learning that you know fresh food was great, uh, great tasting, great for their bodies, Um, and so. You know, since then they, the gardens have matured. Gardens have grown up, and now gardens are, you know, supported by the USDA. There's national conferences on school gardens. Rick had a great uh, conference in January for the Oregon School Garden Program. Um, you know, so school, school gardens are definitely part of the conversation, and, and it, it's a lot easier in my mind these days for school gardens to get going, to have impact, to be involved in these programs because a lot of the early programs really set the, the, the groundwork and the framework for these gardens to be successful.
1: Right. And, and I should add that your, your manual, the Slow Food USA Garden Manual, um, has tools that really reflect the maturation of the movement, um, including. Uh, Tools for uh, putting evaluation into place, um, and which is, is really necessary now that gardens are taken more seriously. To, to get and retain funding, um, you do need that, and you have developed that. So I, I encourage listeners to uh, take a look at all of that. Um, we have been speaking with Rick Sherman from the Oregon Department of Education and Andy Nowak from Slow Food USA about kids growing food for school meals and it's a beautiful idea whose time has arrived. Uh, thank you both for your tireless efforts, and thank you for joining us today.
2: Oh, You're welcome, you. Laura. a pleasure talking to you.
1: Uh, you've been listening to Inside School Food. I'm Laura Stanley. Next week I'll be back with news from the School Nutrition Association's annual national conference in Boston.
3: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.